Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. And the topics discussed are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Sup? I'm Justin Burke, and joined tonight by our outstanding co-host, Dr. Chris the Chu Manchu, and producer, Dr. Jess Kelly. Say hi, Jess. Hey, guys. Uh, we're so excited to have you back for your third episode, fourth episode? Third episode. Third right. episode, all right. Third time Three-timers club. Uh, the other two are good, too. Yeah, three-timers club. Welcome. Dr. Kelly did a great job on this. We have a wonderful guest tonight, Dr. Sarah Welsh. Uh, to discuss shock in pediatrics. Before we tell you all about it, though, let's go to Chris, who's going to tell us about this show. Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Today, we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Welsh, a pediatric critical care medicine doctor and medical director of the Hasbro Children's Hospital Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. Dr. Welsh spends a golden hour with us to teach us on the diagnosis, treatment, and management of septic shock, cardiogenic shock, neurogenic shock, adrenal insufficiency, and more. I hope you guys like the episode. I think you will find some parts of it shocking. to hit record so it's not it's very anticlimactic not a big deal anything I'm else from your end jess so excited because sarah is my favorite human at hasbro <laughs> and you and justin i was about to say whoa 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 whoa, whoa. <laughs> are the best mentors ever so i'm so excited um well we Aww. are very excited to have you too um dr sarah wealth dr sarah wealth thank you for joining us <laughs> we're um, off to a great start <laughs> off to a great start i I, as I was saying in the in the pre-show, very much looking forward to this episode because it is one of our first intensive care episodes. It is our first intensive care episode, and Chris and I have lied our way through a lot of topics that we don't know a lot of information. And this one, I think, um, really hard on this one. Yep. Yeah, the <laughs> lack of knowledge is going to be shocking, to use the pun that we'll use Ooh. multiple times in this episode. Yep. Um, but thank you so much for for joining, and, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is exciting. I've never done a podcast before. This is going to go viral. This is going to be the net serial. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we, we'd love to uh, get to know you a little bit more and have some of our audience get to know you a little bit better. And so to start, we often ask people just to describe themselves or give us a one-liner um, in the medical terminology. Can you kind of describe yourself for our, for our listeners? Sure. Uh, I am 44. I'm a pediatric intensivist. I'm the medical director of our pediatric intensive care unit. Uh, I'm a wife, I'm a mom of two, and you guys can see it, but you can't see it on audio, but I am an avid reader with all the books behind me. That's and, very impressive. Thank you. And a new lover of houseplants. Nice. nice. It's my pandemic hobby. Wow. Planting. I have a cactus, Spike, who has been with me for a long time. He's looking a little rough. The pandemic took its toll, but uh, yeah, yeah. I'm not a huge, I'm, I need to get better at the plant. Uh, yeah, I don't our... grow plants. I have a sourdough starter, but it's at least Ooh. alive still. <laughs> That's a great pandemic hobby. I love <laughs> yeah, it. Really. I love it. 
So um, I guess I'm going to go with the first question, and it's um, I'm going to go with uh, not one that I normally go with. So I'm going to ask you, because you have a large bookshelf of books behind you, what is one of your favorite books that you read this year so far in 2021? Oh, let's see. Um, uh, it's not, it's not a 2021 book, but it's a great book series and I'm a huge reader. I am, I read zero medical books. (laughs) Like I do not read. (laughs) No, no, it's my reading is not at all work related. Um, but there's a great book series by someone named Vivian Shaw who, uh, writes books about, a doctor for like werewolves and vampires. Whoa. Yeah. No, it's great. It's great. And it's actually, right. It's actually related to our field. She's like a supernatural doctor. She's uh Van Helsing's granddaughter in London. Wow. I know, right? Wow. And she is like doctor to the supernatural. And it's so good and thoughtful and like well written, and you would never expect it. Huh. Is that a three-year fellowship or a four-year fellowship? <laughs> I think it's three. I think three it's years, three. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. If you do a research year, I think it's the four. Yeah. Well, I think you, you have, have to, to do get a, like a, a doctor yeah. of veterinary medicine as well, I think. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. You have to do like a five five month stint in zombies. Yeah. We could do a veterinarian uh spin-off, the Cub Ciders. Ooh, nice. Well, that would be your first textbook. There we go. Jess, you want to do a question? Yeah, my question is, because I look up to you so much as a role model, I'd love to hear kind of what advice you have for female physicians when they're starting out, whether it's in residency or fellowship or their first year attending. Yeah, I love you too, Jess. Uh, I think something that really stuck with me when I was trying to make decisions about like what to do as a career was somebody told me about the concept of ikigai, which is like this concept of like your purpose in life and like what you want to be and how to fulfill your place in the world. And it's a combination of four things, what you're good at, key, what you love, what the world needs and what you can get paid for. And I think that was super helpful. And I think especially the last one is so important for women in medicine, especially like women of color in medicine, is that we know that there's a wage gap. And so you have to like figure out all those things. You have to be happy, but you have to get well paid. I like that. That's good advice. Good advice. I think I've seen uh, Dr. Kimberly Manning talk about Ikigai on Twitter quite a bit. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. This is great. So I think we're starting off with some very helpful advice. And now I'm excited to dive into some core pediatric content. Um, and we'll start uh, talking about shock. Love it. Yeah. Um, you want me to start with the case? Yeah, hit it. Great. Okay. So we have a case from Cashlack Children's. This is a 12 year old, previously healthy male coming in with two days of fever, headache, and vomiting. He has no other symptoms, including no cough, diarrhea, rashes, or neck pain. He's laying on a stretcher, pale, not answering questions appropriately, and not oriented to time or place. Vitals show he's febrile to 100.4, heart rate of 145, respiratory rate of 22, and blood pressure of 74 over 48. He appears fatigued, his oral mucosa is dry, but his exam is otherwise unremarkable. 
So Sarah, what are you most worried about in our patient? Yeah, so a lot of things, but I think the thing that I want to say that I'm most worried about, which may not be the the initially obvious one, but I think it's so important when it comes to shock and pediatric shock, is I'm most worried about his altered mental status. And I'm not worried about his altered, well, I am worried about his altered mental status because that could be, you know, a source of what's going on. But the reason I'm most worried about his altered mental status in combination with his tachycardia and hypotension is because that is end organ failure. That's end organ dysfunction. If you have altered mental status, that means you are not getting enough oxygen delivery to that big organ, your brain. Um, and I think that is really crucial where... And we were talking a little bit about this before we started that, you know, hypotension is like one of those things where it's really obvious when it shows up, but um, there's a lot of signs and symptoms before you get to hypotension, especially in the pediatric population with robust hearts and robust systems. And as I was sharing that this was the exact experience I had when I was a resident in the PICU and there was a trial talk where the fellow said, all right, guys, we're talking about shock. When do we start thinking of shock? And I said, hypotension. And they said, we try to find it before then, Justin. That's uh, <laughs> it's a, a little late in the game uh, here in pediatrics. So uh, I didn't talk much for the rest of that lunch hour. But uh, when we are clearly having a presentation like this where the patient is is hypotensive, tachycardic, febrile, altered. And to your point, this is clearly end organ uh, damage. When do we start thinking about shock? When do we start seeing the initial signs that might be be uh, a predecessor for for some of these worse findings? Yeah. So our our it's really on your physical exam, right? So um, when we're seeing shock, the minute you see tachycardia, you're like, oh, okay. There's something that the heart is trying to uh, that is either pushed to or trying to deliver more. I'm trying to increase my cardiac output by increasing my heart rate. So what's going on there? Is it just because of the fever? Hmm, I don't know. It's about perfusion. It's about those things like, are they peeing? And that's not just a dehydration question. That's, do you have perfusion to your kidneys question? You know, altered mental status, perfusion to your brain. You know, those are, and then perfusion to your skin. Those are all our end organ markers of perfusion of our ability to actually do oxygen and delivery. Do we have a specific then criteria that we need to meet so we can say that this is shock and is it different per age group? Because it sounds like if we're looking at these different vitals, I know normal vitals are different at different age groups too. That is a hot tip and point in pediatrics, totally. And I think that's hard for everybody. I, I think that's hard for pediatric providers because as pediatric providers, we're actually asked to internalize and know a different set of normal vitals from a neonate to an adult. And so recognizing things like tachycardia, hypotension, respiratory, you know, tachypnea in a neonate and going, ooh, that baby's got a heart rate of 200, that's high, but a heart rate of 200 in a teenager is ludicrously high. Or in a teenage, you know, in a, a heart rate in a neonate of 130 might be totally fine. But if you're in a 12 year old, you're like, oh man, that kid's really sick. 
So I, you know, we can talk about, absolutely, we can talk about SIRS criteria, right? And so we can talk about, um, and there are different age-based norms for the SIRS criteria, the hyper or hypothermia, the tachycardia or bradycardia, especially in the neonatal and infant population, we have to think about bradycardia, tachypnea, those are going to be age-based, and then white count or bandemia. And then as we go down the pathway, um, you know, we've talked about SERS criteria plus a source is sepsis plus and organ failure or dysfunction is severe sepsis plus not responding to your initial resuscitation is shock. But I think as intensivists and as ER physicians, we get um, more in tuned with thinking about shock as soon as we see end organ dysfunction. One thing, one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why I would be a bad intensivist is I see this patient with a with a fever and um, going into shock and start thinking, is this meningitis? Is this you know uh, septic shock? But I feel like an intensivist sees unstable. Let's make them stable. And so when this patient just rolls in to the ICU, what what's your approach? How, what are the initial steps in stabilization and management of, of this type of patient? Yeah, it's ABCs. Absolutely. You know, if you've got altered mental status, you may not be protecting your airway. That's where we have to start. We've got to make sure that they're oxygenating okay. Um, You know, we know they're breathing, we know they're tachypnic, but making sure that they're doing that. And then you get stuck at C, you get stuck at circulation and going, okay, I've got evidence that whatever circulating isn't enough. (laughs) Um, and this is, you know, in a case like this, that is septic shock. And we can talk about why this looks and feels and smells like septic shock versus some other different types of shock. You know, this is demand outstripping delivery in terms of oxygen demand. So starting with fluid resuscitation, that's absolutely, you know, number one, when you get to that C, you're thinking fluid resuscitation, number one, and, and thinking early about pressors if we needed it. I've heard a little bit about how we have tried to limit the number of fluid boluses we've given. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what studies have come out in regards to that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there's, I think part of it is knowing that fluid is only going to help you with part of the problem. You know, if you've got a preload problem, then fluid's going to help. So if you are dehydrated, this kid hasn't eaten in two days, not drinking, feels like crap, then fluid's going to help. But wanting to set some sort of limit because we want to make sure that we're not just going fluid and fluid and fluid and fluid and fluid. And we're thinking about, well, what is the reason that we still have refractory issues? But there was a really important trial in Africa that showed that children who got more fluid in shock did worse than kids who didn't get as fluid resuscitated. And that was a really important piece for us as intensivists and thinking about the etiologies of shock in children, how those differ from adults and where we need to put our resources. And those were septic shock patients in Africa? It was like dengue fever? Yep. One pearl that sticks with me in pediatrics, and I, I don't know if there's much evidence behind this or, or if there's a real, um, but that you mentioned as far as management is with fever comes tachycardia in kids, comes heart demand, and that antipyretics can actually play a, some role in addressing shock. Is that 
fair to say? Is that correct? Is that what's the thought process? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, decreasing fever is, uh, you know, in general, a, a key point because, you know, one of the one of the equations that ever, the intensivists love is that oxygen delivery equation, which is a combination of what's your content of oxygen in the blood times your cardiac output. So it's like, uh, it's like getting mail, right? It's like, do you have the mail actually in the system to get to you? And do you have the mailman to deliver it? And, you know, I think the other end of that is the demand. And so in sepsis in particular, it's metabolic demand that is being outstripped by the body's ability to deliver oxygen to the tissues that need it. And so anything that decreases metabolic demand is a good thing. That's one of the reasons that actually in the ED and as intensivists, even in kids that don't have respiratory failure, if you are in severe septic shock, we'll often intubate you and take over and do mechanical ventilation just to completely sedate, decrease metabolic demand so that we can work on increasing your delivery. So before we sort of move on to like respiratory and stuff, I want to go back to some of the, the volume resuscitation and fluid resuscitation. Can you talk through a little bit about um, how you personally approach a septic child and what fluids are you giving? How much are you giving and how, what are you doing to reassess for fluid tolerance, fluid responsiveness, um, and that sort of thought process? Absolutely. Um, three big issues there, um, how much to give, what you're getting, what you're giving, and then re reassessment in between fluid resuscitation. So how much to give? Our surviving sepsis guidelines tell us that you start and continue with 20 cc's per kilo is a fluid bolus for kids. Once you get up into the teenage years then and you're adult weighted, then generally a fluid bolus is a liter. And then the only kind of star to that, that exception to that is thinking about doing somewhat smaller boluses if you're worried about cardiogenic shock and you're worried about right heart failure. And the surviving sepsis guidelines kind of give us a up to three of those boluses, not necessarily before you start thinking about pressors. You can think about pressors at any time, but not pushing more and more and more fluid after that without thinking about other interventions. In terms of what to give, that is a huge debate. And the difference between giving normal saline, which I think is the go-to in a lot of places, but there's a lot of evidence that the hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis that you get with normal saline, especially repeated normal saline boluses, actually will hurt you. So thinking about more balanced fluids like lactated ringers, or plasmalite, et cetera, um, is, is a huge debate in intensive care. And there's actually a giant multi-center study coming out about normal saline versus LR in shock patients called the PROMPT bolus study. And that's going to be starting, uh, including at our institution uh, sometime this spring and summer. And then in terms of reassessment, one, it's so important. Like this is the patient that you don't leave their bedside because you do an intervention and then you have to reassess. And that's a combination of looking at the vital signs and seeing if those are improved. And then your, your end organ markers of perfusion, skin perfusion, urination, mental status. And those are all so key to keep checking back in on. Are you following maps? Do we, 
I know in the adult world, we stopped doing CVPs and those types of things. Like in, in the pediatric world, is that, are those useful? No, CV, we've kind of fallen off on CVPs. I mean, a CVP, you know, is kind of like once you're a central venous pressure, once you're um, already in the ICU and you've got your central line and can follow that. But assessment of that and that following that number is kind of fallen out of favor. But definitely having like whatever you think an age appropriate mean arterial pressure goal and and also combining that with if you pick a goal and you're like, all right, I think this kid needs a map of 55, but you're still not getting there in terms of your perfusion and your markers of end organ delivery, then that map doesn't cut it. So I think that's that's really important. Another, you know, a plug for one of the things that we're doing a lot more of instead of following CVPs is following ultrasound and doing bedside ultrasound to watch, you know, how dilated or floppy your IVC is, comparing your IVC to your aorta. So those are really key things that the ED uses, that the adult ICUs use, that the pediatric ICUs uses, uses as well. Do we do things like uh, straight leg raises to see if there's any fluid responsiveness? I, I know it's hard because kids don't have as much volume in those legs. So right. um, I was just wondering whether that would be useful or maybe just more in our older older adolescents and young adults. Yeah, not usually um, because you're exactly right. Like blood volume doesn't like it doesn't really hang out in the legs there. Um, have I pushed on a liver to give some preload back at one point in, in my life? Absolutely. Just to shove whatever was in the, you know, distal IVC up into the right atrium, but, um, but not usually. The Welsh maneuver. <laughs> yeah, it's not it. That's not it. Forevermore. <laughs> and how about for hyper special uh, treatment things? What's the, what's the pressure we're going to? I had an adult resident that always told, well, he was an adult, but he was also in internal medicine. Um, uh, you can never go wrong with norepi. Sometimes yeah. there's a little bit better answer, but there's norepi is never the wrong answer. Is that is that true in pediatrics or epi? No. I feel like used to be uh, <laughs> big. I don't know if that's still big. We want made yeah. a little hummingbird. Yeah. What's the no, what am I pulling? It's a total lie. Um, it's a uh, you know absolutely that's the answer in adults, but kids are really interesting. And in fact, there's a lot of data that says that uh, which you wouldn't you wouldn't think. You're like, oh, adults they've got crappy hearts. They're going to have cardiac output issues as a component of their shock because norepi, the action of norepi is going to be increasing your systemic vascular resistance. And so that's going to push all of that blood, you know, back up into your IVC, back up into your venous system, increase your preload. For kids, a lot of the time it's an inotropy issue and there's a lot of sepsis related myocardial dysfunction in kids. And so, you know, a fair amount of time, the, the presser of choice is epi rather than norepi in kids. But I want to make sure that I say, because I would be, uh, it would be terrible if I left this conversation without saying it. If anybody says there's one presser or always use this or go to this for kids, then that's the wrong answer. Because in any time that you're making a presser choice, just like if you're making an intubation medication choice, it should be, what do I think the actual problem is? You know, is it, uh, you know, the components of cardiac output are heart rate and stroke volume. And so maybe I don't need a presser at all. Maybe I need to, if I'm bradycardic, I need to augment my heart rate. The components of stroke volume are preload. So hopefully I've given enough preload. Are inotropy, so that contractility, and afterload. 
And so what do I think my issue is about how to augment my cardiac output and pick the presser that's going to fix that problem? All right. So this patient has arrived. What are our first orders that we're going to put in when we see them? Yeah. So, you know, I think like we talked about where we're ABCs is our actions, but our orders are, you know, if we're feeling like this is a patient with septic shock um, and we're starting with our, you know, our interventions of fluid boluses and then lab workup, what's going to be most important is doing broad culturing. Um, so figuring out what our possible sources are because source control is everything in septic shock. And so that's things like blood cultures. You know, this is a kid who has had altered mental status. And I know we talked about, could meningitis be a case? Could, you know, and that's something, absolutely. Can you get sepsis from meningitis? Totally. So is this somebody that needs an LP? And maybe that's not the first thing you're thinking about, but CBC, blood culture, CRP to, to trend inflammatory markers, electrolytes to make sure that all of those are, you know, in order. And I'd think about a CMP, a comprehensive panel, because looking at your transaminases is going to be in another important marker of end organ function gas, you know, so a blood gas with a lactate. Um, lactate can help. Your base deficit can help tell you about your metabolic demand and your delivery. And then one of the most important things that I think that you've got to order straight, straight away so that your pharmacy can get it for you is targeted antibiotics. One of the key goals in surviving sepsis, the surviving sepsis campaign is antibiotics in the patient within one hour of recognition of sepsis. And that's actually in the patient. Uh, and I think we all know in hospital time that sometimes takes a while to actually get the antibiotics there. And there's, including our institution, many institutions have really clear order sets and guidelines about what empiric antibiotics work for what patient, you know, because our febrile neutropenic oncology patient might need a different sort of coverage than, um, you know, a baby that you're concerned for meningitis for. Can you help me uh, interpret a base deficit? Absolutely. Um, so it's a little bit of a, it's not a fake value, but it's a calculated value. Um, and it's a way to uh, not only assess um, what you think your uh, bicarb is, um, and you may be looking at that, you know, your electrolytes may come back as well, but it, it would tell you if there's other additional acids that are circulating in the body. And most usually that's going to be lactic acid and is so has a gestalt, which is a terrible word, but, you know, helping you with the realization that there again is demand that's not being met, that either there's lactate being produced by tissues that aren't getting enough oxygen, whether that's by cardiac output or otherwise. Or if there's in like the DKA patient, there's ketones as circulating acids um, or if you have a significant metabolic acidosis and your bicarb is low, either from, you know, losses in, in one direction or another. Easy enough. I would encourage people to take a look at uh, Scott Weingart's acid base podcast, looking at uh, the, the physical chemistry method of, uh, of acid base. And he talks a lot about uh, base excess and base deficit. Maybe I can wrap up this case. This was an interesting case. Um, he, this patient actually did get 220 per kilo boluses, and we started him on a norepidrep. We found out he had E. coli sepsis, and later it was found that this was because he had undiagnosed Crohn's disease. So it was kind of an interesting presentation of septic shock. 
Yeah. It's a great case. Yeah. All right. So our next case, this is a flashback to my intern year. <laughs> Called to the bedside to assess a 15-month-old girl who's admitted with enterovirus bronchiolitis who developed poor feeding, lethargy, and emesis. She's been tachycardic since admission and has already gotten 60 per kilo of IV fluids. On exam, she's ill-appearing. Her respiratory rate is 45, her heart rate is 160, and her blood pressure is 70 over 40. Her lungs have crackles at the bases with scattered coarse breath sounds. She has no murmurs, rubs, or gallops, but her liver is three centimeters below the costal margin. Her cap refill is four seconds. So in hearing this, how is this different from our first case? Yeah, so these are the cases that strike fear in the heart of every intensivist. This is, you know, and there's and there's so many aspects of this case that are not only classic for pediatrics, but are also super interesting in 2021, you know, the COVID era. So bronchiolitis is terrifying, right? It is a thing that, well, now we don't see, we barely have seen it in a year and a half. But the reason bronchiolitis is terrifying is not because it is intrinsically a, you know, a, a bad disease process, although it costs enormous amount of money, et cetera, et cetera, disease burden, but because there's sneaky things that can be not bronchiolitis. And one of those scariest things that can be not bronchiolitis or in addition to bronchiolitis is myocarditis. And so viral myocarditis, especially in children, is insidious until it's not. And the degree of arrest in myocard in severe myocarditis in kids is is really, really scary. So, you know, I'm worried about in a kid with bronchiolitis who's clearly got poor perfusion, some relative hypotension, some significant tachycardia, I'm really, really worried about cardiac dysfunction. And then you add in the component of having, you know, her liver down which says to me that she has got increased right-sided pressures and she has got um, some degree of right-sided dysfun- cardiac dysfunction. And I'm, I'm very, very worried. I'm, I'm thinking less about lab workup and I'm thinking more about immediate management of her cardiac failure. But the thing that I think is really interesting to talk about in our current era is that we, there's this whole new entity called MIS-C, you know, multi-system or, uh, um, inflammatory syndrome in children. Woo, I got it. Um, and uh, that has a whole workup that comes with it. So kids that, you know, you find out their parents had COVID six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, and are coming in with this, could also have bronchiolitis at the same time, but are coming in with this hyper-inflammatory um, and often with cardiogenic shock. Um, and so the workup for MISC and where kids are getting a lot of screening labs now is all the basically like hyperinflammatory markers and acute phase reactants. So D-dimer and fibrinogen and ferritin and a CBC and, you know, troponins and BNPs. So that's a, that's a whole different set of workup that kids are going through now in addition to, uh, to thinking about that in shock. And so bringing this back to a patient that has the the liver down and has signs of right-sided heart failure that seems to be in a different type of shock, cardiogenic shock, uh, how do we do on management? It's still We still just want tons and tons of fluids, right? Get that preload up. So do we give more fluids or are we doing something different? Excellent. Yeah. So no, right? Um, the, you know, if I've got right-sided failure and I've got high right-sided pressures, the more preload I dump in, 
the worse I'm going to be. So I want to make sure that I have adequate preload. Um, you know, a lot of times this is tricky because kids um, are also that feel crappy are also not drinking and eating, you know, for days and days. So they could be preload down at the same time. But no, then we've got to think about inotropy. And we've got to think about both inotropy um, and also left ventricular help. And so decreasing afterload while we also increase our cardiac output by increasing contractility. And so what are your go-to medicines? Are you doing dobutamine? Are you doing, uh, what are you doing to release afterload? Yeah, absolutely. So you've kind of got two, well, you've got multiple options not two options. You've got multiple options. Um, dobutamine is a great drug. It's got inotropy. It's got um, afterload reduction. I think we often end up on milrinone and milrinone has a beautiful combination of afterload reduction, a little bit of inotropy actually, and lucitropy. Lucitropy, which is one of my favorite words Oh, it's such a lovely word. I, I don't know lucitropy. This is great. Lucitropy. Lucitropy is, um, we, I think we're going to start ladies of critical care and emergency medicine and be like ladies who lucitropy or something, or like lucitropy lunches. Lucitropy is diastolic relaxation. Oh. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm tacking away. I've got boom, 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 boom. And I'm trying to squeeze, but if I have decreased function, as I'm trying to increase the squeeze to increase my stroke volume, I need to be able to relax as well. So we're in diastole, my, uh, you know, my chambers need to relax so that I can actually fill with that preload. So then when you squeeze again and have that increased contractility, I'm squeezing out more stroke volume. But that's different than decreasing heart rate, it sounds like. Yeah. Right? It's sometimes interesting. It just relaxes the muscles more and diastole. Yep. Wow. Lucitropy. I like Lucitropy. it. Lucitropy. Lucitropy. Great word. Is that a real medical term or is that just fun? Like you loosen up diastolic. Is that actually Latin for. I also need to know how to spell it. I don't yeah. even know. L U S I T R O P Y. Lucitropy. That sounds like a real Latin Spelling word. Spelling not... me. It's a real yeah. word. Oh, nice. Uh, that's amazing. What a great pearl. Cool. This is great. There you um, go. Awesome. And so we talked about MISC. We talked about a patient who has some underlying, let's say this patient has underlying uh, viral myocarditis. What are other things that can cause cardiogenic shock or cardiac failure in a pediatric patient? Yeah. Um, so many scary things. So, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about sepsis-related myocardial, dis myocardial dysfunction. Um, so just having sepsis can give you some degree of um, cardiogenic shock in addition to your septic shock. So that it's stinks. Bad luck. Bad as bad luck. And a lot, actually, a lot of our MISC patients that have been really sick, it's been hard to differentiate between their cardiogenic shock and their septic shock because sometimes we like to feel like we can lump together warm shock or cold shock, you know, in terms of like warm is like the classic septic shock where you've got bounding pulses, your skin's hot, you've got flash cap refill. Um, and cold shock is I've got lousy pulses, you know, my cap refills five seconds, et cetera. And we think that cold shock means you've got cardiogenic and warm shock means you're septic. Um, because you've got, you know, increased metabolic demand. And a lot of these MISC kids look like both. 
at the same time and are really hard to differentiate. But then we've got a lot of, there's a whole world of kids that have congenital heart disease that can have cardiac failure. Um, you can, if you are un- unfortunate enough to have been a kid with cardiac arrest, you can have the same sort of like cardiac slump that you can see in adults post arrest and that sort of cardiogenic failure. Um, so there can re- actually be, you know, just as just as wide a range for kids as there can be for adults for having cardiac dysfunction that isn't atherosclerosis. Is that like the baby who comes in with? heart rate of 200 for three days and their list list those kids too oh sure like the svt kids right like the kids who are in constant svt and then you know are have not had enough actual stroke volume out their coronaries so then they do have like true myocardial ischemia so that can happen too absolutely there's and there's a fan, not fantastic, not fantastic for the people that have it, but there's this really interesting infant to like one, one and a half years thing called Alcapa, which is anomalous left coronary artery from the pulmonary artery, coronary. I think that's right. I think that's right. Jess is nodding at me. Um, where uh, instead of your coronary arising from your aorta, your coronary comes off your pulmonary artery. So whoops, you're getting mixed blood. You're getting desaturated blood going to your myocardium instead of, you know, instead of oxygen rich blood. And that is just one of those silent congenital heart things that you don't know until they've underfed their left ventricle way too long. If you want to look smart in pediatrics, grab an EKG, look at it and say, could be El Kappa, and then toss it and walk out of the room. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Great. Jess, you want to keep us, uh, keep moving? Yeah, I can. So this patient actually ended up having left ventricular dysfunction on echo. Her troponin and BMP were elevated. So she got transferred from the floor to the PICU. She was actually intubated and got some Lasix and was started on milrinone. Um, and actually got IVIG for her myocarditis and ended up doing really well. Okay, so our third patient is a 15-year-old male who comes in after being struck by a car while riding a bike. He complains of left leg pain, abdominal pain, and chest pain. He's alert but anxious and diaphoretic. Heart rate is 130, respiratory rate is 32, blood pressure is 88 over 62, and his O2 size 92%. He has decreased breath sounds on the left side, He is bruising across the left side of his abdomen. So what is the biggest thing that comes to mind that you're worried about in this case? Yeah, with um, with desaturation, with, you know, decreased breath sounds and with that narrow, slightly, you know, fairly narrow pulse pressure for him. I'm really worried that there's something awry on that side of the chest, right? And so that could be a number of things in a trauma patient like this who's had blunt organ injury. That could be a pneumothorax. It could be a hemothorax. It could be a number of things. It could be with the decreased breath sounds, it's probably one of those two things. But with the narrowed pulse pressure, he's also at risk for big pericardial effusion, tamponade, et cetera. So um, I'm I'm really worried that um, this is going to be progressing down an obstructive shock pattern. And that could be, again, from anything that is, you know, externally compressing the heart and is not allowing the heart to have, to be able to deliver the cardiac output that it wants to. 
And so, so what do we do with this case? What, how, how do we, how do we get rid of that air? Yeah. Um, so if it's air, uh, you needle decompress and put in a chest tube and that's always, uh, super satisfying. Um, I'll put in another plug for ultrasound, man. This is a, a key thing at the bedside where you can get some information right off the bat to know whether that's air or whether that's fluid, um, and what's there and looking at your lung sliding or not lung sliding, you know, before, before and during when you're putting a needle in the chest. Where does that needle go? <laughs> um, so the most key, so it's usually a uh, mid axillary line, um, and uh, fourth or fifth rib. Um, you can also do mid clavicular, but the most important thing is over the rib, not under the rib, because our um, vascular nerve bundles live right underneath our ribs. And so when I was taught how to needle decompress, I was actually taught to go in and intentionally hit the rib, not hard, not hard, not poking into the rib, but to know that that's where my rib was and then to walk the needle up over it. Nice. Well, so this patient actually had a needle decompression and had a chest tube place. He had frank blood come out of his um, chest tube and his vital signs did improve. Heart rate was 105, respiratory rate was 20, his blood pressure was 90 over 70, and his SAT became 82% or 98% but he continued to report leg and abdominal pain. And so they had concern for internal bleeding and hemorrhagic shock. So what are we gonna do to manage this patient? Yeah, so you know, if you are in your future home of the trauma bay, Jess, um, there's, you know, hopefully everybody has been getting all of our trauma labs and that includes in type and screen um, because in every institution, uh, there's a massive transfusion protocol. And so thinking about doing balanced transfusions for patients that are having hemorrhagic shock, balanced transfusions of whole blood or uh, platelets, plasma, and PRBCs can be obviously life-saving. And this guy has got a lot of reasons to have risk for hemorrhagic shock. Not only could he have blunt abdominal, you know, organ injury, if he's got a pelvic fracture, that's a huge potential space for blood loss, leg, you know, a femur fracture, huge potential for blood loss. So um, absolutely, he's got a lot of that going on. So ABCs, type and screen, um, massive transfusion protocol if he needs it, and he needs imaging ASAP. And what is that workup? I, again, I, as, as a cerebral bad intensivist, I'm thinking hemorrhagic shock. We need to be checking, you know, is he iron deficient? Do we need to start <laughs> supplemental iron? What, what, what's my, what's my workup for this patient? The, the luxury of the intensivist is that, uh, you know, we're a lot of action up front <laughs> for this guy. He, you know, he's gonna, you're not going to be sitting around following CBCs, you know, if he's got the potential to bleed and he's got the possibilities for bleeding and you've still got, um, you know, vital sign instability, then you're resuscitating, you're giving blood. So as long as he's got, and even if his type and screen isn't back, you're using O negative blood that's emergently available in the ED. The And the trauma labs that get sent whenever a kid like this or any patient like this rolls into the trauma bay, um, the general things that are always sent are type and screen, CBC, electrolytes, you know, that CMP, coags, CMP with the transaminases, PT, PTT, 
D-dimer, fibrinogen, et cetera. So, um, you know, that all that basic workup. And what, what about imaging? You know, I don't want to, I don't want to radiate this kid too much that, you know, be worrisome. So uh, what kind of imaging are we looking at? <laughs> um, the, the future emergency medicine physician is laughing right now because she'll irradiate anybody. No, that's not true. We try really hard to not just irradiate children um, and CT everything, but this is actually a kid that probably needs a pan scan. Um, you know, again, like they, uh, to do definitely needs an abdominal CT a hundred percent depends on his mental status, whether or not he needs brain scan. But I would say that this is probably a guy that ends up with a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, um, straight from the trauma bay and back into the trauma bay to make sure that there's nothing else that needs to be intervened on and probably gets, uh, some leg plane films along the way. Right. So much irradiation. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all, uh, yeah. All the imaging. All love pulling the trigger the, on the CT. The, the radiation uh, will, will uh, cauterize yeah. any type of bleeding. That's so. right. That's right. Jess, what, uh, whatever happened to this patient anyway? Yeah. Yeah. It turned out he had a grade five splenic lack on abdominal CT, uh, but he responded well to IV fluids and actually didn't require any transfusion um, or operative intervention. So he did really well. Great. I need to review my splenic laceration grading. Not as bad as six, better than four, or worse than four. Is there a six? I don't think there's a I six. No, there's no six. There's no six. I haven't seen a splenic. just trying to get to 11 here. I haven't seen a splenic. Yeah. I haven't seen a splenic laceration in a while. All right. Um, Great. And so, Jess, I am very excited. Our, our wonderful producer, uh, Dr. Jess Kelly, made some rapid fire cases uh, that I think are going to be very interesting. And so I'll start with the first one, if that's okay. We have a 15-month-old female who was found improperly restrained after a motor vehicle accident, uh, was brought in by EMS, and was only responsive to painful stimuli. Heart rate of 90, blood pressure of 50 over 30, respiratory rate over 30, setting at 98%. Uh, the great leading question uh, why? So, uh, in this type of case, what are you, what are you thinking about? Yeah. So, so sad and scary and, and, and such a tough situation. Um, the thing I'm most ner nervous about is neurogenic shock. And I'm worried without being fluid responsive at all, that she's had spinal cord injury. So the, you know, the triad of neurogenic shock is, um, hypotension, bradycardia, and peripheral vasodilation. And neurogenic shock is really as you, uh, and you don't have to transect the spinal cord, but as you stun or injure the spinal cord, which she absolutely could have had as an unrestrained baby, you um, injure your sympathetic pathways. And so you have unopposed parasympathetic um, action. And, uh, you know, that's, it's a, it's a really, really hard shock to treat. What is it? Pressors? Is it? Yeah. Yeah. It's Let's early, see. early pressors. So, um, atropine or isoproterenol, um, plus epi, et cetera. It's just a lot of what, what sympathomimetics can we get into the body? The lesson learned here is Guys, keep your keep yeah. your kids backwards at the, in their in their car seats as long as possible, please. Yep, until they outgrow their car seat. Yep, strap them in, absolutely, and make sure that the car seat is actually strapped to the car. 
that's what we see most often. Uh, I mean, I don't know that most often, but a fair amount of the time is that kids are in the car seat, but the car seat, you know, especially with parents that are moving car seats back and forth, that the car seat's not actually buckled mm. to the car. I was trying to do a fun vibe of rapid fire, but that was that was actually pretty. Oh, sorry, sorry that's a little dark. heartbreaking. Yeah, uh, no, yeah, I feel bad for the fictional fifteen-month-old. Yeah. Um, yeah, Jess, why don't you take the next one? You seem to have a better yeah, sense go of back, the, the go tone. back to the preteen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, a twelve-year-old with minimal change disease is admitted post-op, status post-appendectomy. She's hypotensive, not responding to fluids, and has no fever or source of infection, no heart issues, and no bleeding. And I think, you know, a couple things could be going on here, but what are you thinking of, Sarah? Yeah, so um, I think we'd be thinking uh, initially, and we might be fooled by it, or it might be that whenever kids are coming out of anesthesia, I'm always worried about the effect of anesthesia, um, because anything that we give in the OR, any sedating medications are all going to drop your systemic vascular resistance. And so if she's still having effects of general anesthesia, um, you know, that's going to be hard to fix with fluids. But the other thing that's always in the back of our mind, especially with kids that are unresponsive to our therapies, um, and there's a couple of things that like pop out when this happens, is adrenal insufficiency. Um, and that can be one of the things that we can see with that, um, especially in a kid like this that may have had steroid course on steroid course on steroid course for her renal disease, that uh, you know, with the stress of something like surgery, if she didn't have if she has underlying adrenal insufficiency and didn't get stress dose steroids, then that absolutely might be the case here. Um, and uh, something that can pop up with adrenal insufficiency and adrenal crisis uh, is hyperkalemia and hyponatremia are the electrolyte things that can tip you off that that might be going on. This was my case. I remember this now. Oh, uh, yeah, nice. I saw this. I had this. I had this in residency, and I remember the my senior resident, Cami Rogers, came in and said, this patient's not on their stress dose steroids. Everyone else was very panicked, including myself, because it was not responding to fluids. Nothing was working. And it was a good one to keep on the differential. How high a steroids do we need to go then? Yeah. So um, usually stress dose steroids for a severe stress, and we consider going through surgery a severe stress for these kids, is 100 milligrams of hydrocortisone per metered squared. So that's like a good solid dose of hydrocortisone. Usually it ends up, you know, being like 100 milligrams as an emergency dose. So these kids have IM hydrocort at home. And if they get sick, their parents know that if they have like a medium stress, like they get strep throat, then they get X dose. And if they have a severe stress, then they get the other dose. What other medicines are dosed by body surface area? That seems like a weird, I'm I always know, amazed. Right? Emotherapy. Chemo. Oh, interesting. Totally. That is a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Chemo. I'm trying to think if there's other ones in uh, in my regular world. Sunscreen. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> one application per body surface area. <laughs> so at, at risk for uh, derailing this, these rapid fire questions even more about adrenal insufficiency, how often are we seeing this just in regular shock um, outside of these patients? And uh, when are we pulling out the steroids for those patients? Oh, yeah. Great question. You know, it's so hard to know. I don't think that uh, in a previously healthy kid in general, there's not a lot of adrenal insufficiency in shock. If it's like a, a septic shock, if et cetera. 
previously healthy kids that are now post-arrest for some reason, absolutely you can see adrenal insufficiency. The where, where stress dose steroids are in the surviving sepsis pathway is basically when you're refractory to two or three pressors. And so absolutely, you can pull that out as something in your back pocket for anybody that's in shock who's refractory like that. But usually that's a secondary adrenal insufficiency from some other cause. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So what are your main take-home points for our listeners? Um, you know, I think so many, uh, a lot of the take-home points that you all said, which was fantastic. Tachycardia is such an important early warning sign, um, and it's really hard to make sure that you're recognizing it effectively in kids. Again, because we talked about, we have to know so many different vital sign ranges because of the age of patients, the range of patients that we take care of. But recognizing tachycardia, and I think the patient that it gets under-recognized in most is the like 11 to 17-year-old who's got a heart rate of 110, and that that's actually really high. <laughs> you know, once you get up past the toddler age, that's actually a really high heart rate, but we're so used to taking care of two to three-year-olds that when we ignore that. So that's a really sensitive time. Um, and I think, you know, Justin's point from the beginning that hypotension is a fairly late sign in shock. You know, that's, we talk in, uh, in PALS, we talk about compensated shock versus uncompensated shock and compensated basically means that you've got enough, you know, oomph in your system. Um, you've got enough ability to increase your SVR to keep yourself not hypotensive. So if you've lost that ability, then that's pretty late in the game. So thinking about end organ perfusion, markers of end organ perfusion and tachycardia early, I think is so key. And then my last one is these are the kids that you stay at the bedside. You don't order the bolus and then go see somebody else. And you've got that comes back to Chris's point of you've got to reevaluate between each of your interventions because your intervention might make it worse. You know, if it's somebody in cardiogenic shock who's already got their liver down, your fluid bolus might make them worse. And that's not only important to know so you don't do it again, but it's an important diagnostic tip that tells you which direction to go in. Thank you. Anything that, um, so this was such a, a joy to have you. I feel like we got to talk about septic shock, cardiogenic shock, neurogenic shock, uh, adrenal insufficiency. I took away a lot of pearls. Uh, is there anything that you would like to plug, any resources or things that you'd like to send our listeners to, to check out? Oh, this is such a, I, I wish I had something to plug. Uh, you know, the journal, the journal of choice in, uh, in pediatric critical care is unsurprisingly called pediatric critical care medicine. So, uh, easy to remember, <laughs> right? PCCM. <laughs> and that's a really good one. And yeah, the SCCM, uh, website actually has some really lovely things that you can do on your own. Oh, and you know what? Uh, open pediatrics from Boston Children's has some great freely available modules on critical care topics. And I think there absolutely is one in terms of shock. Great. Cool. Well, thank you again so much for joining us. This was an absolute pleasure. I wish I had this when I was going into my pediatric IC rotation. We really appreciate your taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This was so fun. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids! Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at thecribsiders.com. 
We are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please, subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast players. You can also email us at thecribsiders at gmail.com, and we often respond. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Jess Kelly, and our wonderful social media team. Thank you for joining us tonight. I've been Dr. Justin Lee Burke. I've been Jess Kelly. And this has been Chris the Chi Manchu. Thank you. Good night. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.